2 Kings chapter 16. Uh, I am so happy to be in this particular passage, not because it necessarily talks about happy things, but because I think it speaks to each and every one of us here this morning. Uh, This particular chapter I have found to be very resonant, very uh, remarkably timely for our present day and age. I know for some of you, maybe perhaps many of you, history is just not your thing. (laughs) Uh, When you were in college or high school, you tried to avoid history classes like the plague, or perhaps even history conversations like the plague. You don't delight in reading things about people who you don't really know, let alone you you don't even understand who or why they're important. (laughs) These historical details seem a little bit tedious. There's all these dates, and there's these names, and there's these details, and it's hard to keep them all straight, and I concur with you. Especially as I've been reading the books of Kings, it's, I have all these questions that I have to constantly keep in my head, and perhaps you do too. Who's, who's attacking who now, and, and why, and, and they're important because, and, and he's this guy's son or something. There's a lots of things you're having to put together. But I think within all of that, even as much as I would admit it's kind of easy to get lost in some of that historical detail... I have come to find, and perhaps you have too, hopefully, if I've done my job, I guess, I don't know. Um, I found these books of Kings to be so incredibly impactful and meaningful for what they are, the stories they are trying to tell. The one particular theme I haven't been able to escape as I've been uh, traversing all of these chapters is just this incredibly persistent theme that the historian is basically pounding over our heads over and over and over again is that there is only one true author and authority of history and his name is King Jesus or he would refer to him as Yahweh. Over and over again, you have that phrase. We've referenced it, we've alluded to it, and it's, it's sort of the, 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 the drumbeat, so to speak, of the historian's message. Is that these things are happening according to the word of the Lord. And he's reminding uh, uh, his people of that, reminding his brothers of that. That regardless of how powerful these kings are, how, how influential these world leaders are that he's referencing here in these books, regardless of how often they try to assert their will, there's only one king's will who ultimately matters, and that's King Jesus, Yahweh's will. Everything happens according to his word, not man's. That's the historian's thesis. And it's this theme that he traces as he's looking at how the people of God, God's covenant people, have found themselves in disintegration and demise and ruin. Remember, he's speaking to exiled Israelites, giving them sort of a history lesson. Here's how we fell. Here's the rise and the fall of God's people. Where did we, where did we go off? And I think this story resonates with me, not just because I'm one of the weird ones. I like history. <laughs> I like reading about historical events and, and putting them into context and understanding why things occurred that the way that they did. But I think this story resonates even more, I think, because as we are reading this story, this tragedy of Israel and Judah, we're also reading our own tragedy, too. 
And I don't mean to say that, you know, the United States is like the new Israel, something like that. I'm not trying to be weird like that. I'm just trying to say that the tragedy that has befallen God's people that we're reading about is essentially the tragedy of humanity in general. The collapse of king after king. We've read about a lot of them so far. But all of these collapses of, of all of these reigns of these kings, I think, is essentially is just a mirror that's been held up for the likes of you and me. It's been preserved for us. And it shows us, namely, the horrible, awful, appalling results that happen when we embrace sin and sedition and strife. Nothing good comes from it. Nothing God-honoring, nothing beautiful, nothing, nothing lovely comes from that embrace. It shows us exactly what happens when God and his word are not just ignored, not just sort of left to the sidelines, but outright abandoned, outright rejected, outright sort of spat upon and gone the other way. And I think the, the hard reality that at least I've come to try and face as I've read these chapters is that this mirror is meant to show us ourselves. How often we are inclined to some of the same things that even these wicked kings are. <laughs> you know, it's not easy to read a piece of history and find yourself amongst the failures. To identify with those who've uh, met face to face with ruin and ridicule. But in fact, I think within that admission, within that sort of realization that you and I here this morning have more in common with history's failures. We are likewise confessing the most wonderful thing of all. That we are desperate for someone to deliver us. In this tracing of history... He's tracing the very fundamental roots of God's people to say, you aren't the deliverers. You need one. You're desperate for one. You're aching and groveling among the dust for a deliverer, for someone to rescue you. When there's one that's been given to you, the historian is trying to urge his people to see that point. There's a deliverer for you, and his name, again, is Yahweh, King forever, Jesus. And I think that's somewhat of the painful realization of history, is that we aren't the ones who save the world. We're the ones who get saved. We're the ones who need a savior. That's sort of the point of history. With just a long, perhaps meandering introduction to this particular chapter. Which shows us, I think, this painfully timely need for the church. For those who would call themselves the people of God. To make a stand. You see, after going back and forth for a couple chapters in this book of 2 Kings between Israel and Judah, and he's comparing kings and showing how they've interacted and how they've each met their downfalls. Here, this particular chapter in chapter 16 focuses solely on the kingdom of Judah. And I think he does this for a specific reason. If you go back to verse 38, the last verse of chapter 15, notice, and it says, And Jotham slept with his fathers, and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his father, or in the city of David, his father, and Ahaz, his son, reigned in his stead. And in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. 
He's picking up right here after Jotham has deceased. Ahaz comes to the throne. And in you know, that old adage about the apple falling far from the tree here is very important. Because here in this particular instance, the apple has fallen very, very far away from the tree. Jotham was mostly good. He tried to do some good things, tried to redirect people's attention towards the temple of the Lord, towards the things of Yahweh. But with Ahaz, it's anything but. As he proceeds to bring Judah to all-time lows, socially, politically, uh, spiritually, most importantly. And I think that's what's most glaring as you read this. He is the king of Judah. And notice, as it says in verse 20, 20 years old was Ahaz when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He's going away from what his heritage was in his upbringing, perhaps, from what all of his history was driving him to go towards. He's going the opposite. The kings of Judah were the kings of promise. The kingdom of Judah was the line through which the Messiah was promised to come. Dating all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. When God gave David that promise through you. The king will, a king will sit on the throne of Judah forever. And yet we see here how devastatingly awful it is when this king Ahaz is basically trampling all over that Davidic heritage and promise. He's not doing what was right in the sight of the Lord like it was promised to David his father. Instead, he's following the wicked ways of the kings of Israel. And as it continues, yea, and made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen. Whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. He's not... Dutifully putting himself under the authority of Yahweh. Instead, he is imitating all of this waywardness of the kings of Israel. Oh, what they're doing? I'll try and do that too. He's mimicking not just their abominations, but the abominations, as it says, of the heathens. He's wicked, mimicking all of their wicked uh, sort of practices of these pagans. That's what the historian is trying to get his readers to see. He's seeing something else and copying it for himself. And I think it's interesting how the historian is pointing out here that it's precisely Ahaz who's doing these things. Again, notice, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Yea, and made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed, and we could insert, and he burned incense in the high places and in the hills and under every green tree. This is sort of this suggestion here that King Ahaz is the ringleader of all of this debauchery, of all of this darkness. It's coming from the top down. It's, 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 it's emanating in the people, and yes, but it's coming from the very top. Judah's king himself is the one who's basically championing, leading this descent into darkness. And it's most appallingly exemplified in just that little phrase in verse 3. 
talking about how Ahaz made his son to pass through the fire, which is basically child sacrifice. Burning his son alive to appease whatever God he has come to ascribe, come to accept for his own. And I think there's nothing, as the historian I think is making this point, and as he will continue further in this chapter, that there's nothing which demonstrates that just the, the grotesque epitome of rejecting the Lord of all things than by sacrificing children. That's what the most worst of the pagans and heathens do in those countries that they, the people of God, were meant to reject, were meant to have nothing to do with. And here Ahaz is not just coming alongside that practice. He's performing it himself. He is participating in that atrocity himself. Transgressing hundreds of years of strict uh, sort of commands that have come from the mouth of the Lord. In fact, just so you can see this, go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter number 18. Notice Deuteronomy 18, this is sort of beginning to, uh, when, the, when the people of the Lord were coming into the land of promise, this word of the Lord from uh, at the beginning of that, at the outset of that, notice what God says to his people, this strict command. When thou art come into the land, Deuteronomy 18 verse 9, excuse me, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, Thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. Or that useth divination or an observer of the times or an enchanter or a witch. And on and so it goes. You have nothing to do with that. Nothing at all to sort of, uh, you should have no familiarity, no sort of, uh, sort of agreement with these practices among these people. You're to excise them, abolish them out of the land. So as Ahaz, here in chapter 16 of 2 Kings, I have no doubt that he might have thought of himself as this really progressive sort of leader. Look at the great things I'm bringing into the nation of God's people. Look at these great new practices. Look at these great new influential ventures I'm endeavoring on. We're such a progressive kingdom. But in actuality, it's not progressive at all. It's just regressive. He's regressing the people of God by hundreds of years. He's going backwards. He's going backwards in terms of everything that God's people had come to know and love and participate in. It's a horrible atrocity that he here commits. Not just following the Lord, but allowing all of these other things to come in and influence God's people. But this regression also manifests politically too. He allows these things to influence the people's hearts spiritually. But notice verse 5. Because amongst all of this, and I think as a direct consequence, he comes under fire. He begins to have his borders become under siege. Notice verse 5. Then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. There's this sort of long, drawn-out sort of conflict between this, this alliance between Syria and Israel and Judah here. And they're at war. 
constantly seeing reports of bloodshed, constantly seeing all of these uh, disintegrations of the economy, of their people. And at the same time, the Chronicler tells us this in 2 Chronicles 28, he's also under attack from the Philistines and the Edomites. They're raiding his borders on the southern side. There's lots of conflict at hand for Ahaz. Lots of things that could distract his mind. Lots of ways in which things could go wrong. And eventually this leads, as the historian tells us, to the loss of this really important city in verse number 6, the city of Elath. Notice, and at that time Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria and drave the Druze from Elath. And the Syrians came to Elath and dwelt there unto this day. That city was a very critical trading port at the mouth of the Red Sea. Losing it meant a, a huge blow to is, uh, Judah's economy. They're feeling the squeeze of all of these conflicts they are. Ahaz perhaps is feeling the pressure politically. Perhaps seeing not very hopeful military reports. The morale in Judah is not very high. And who do you think he turns to? Where is his resort? Where does he go? Where does he, where does he know that he can turn to and get aid, get help? Well, not Jehovah. Look at verse number 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And notice what he says. I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. That's right. After all of that, he bows to this wicked, awful king of Assyria, King Tiglath-Pileser, or as we've also referred to him as, referred to him as King Pool. And it's not necessarily surprising we shouldn't be shocked by Ahaz here in one hand he's already demonstrated that he has really no interest no regard for the things of the Lord no regard for anything that Yahweh has to say why would he turn to him now in his time of need he's never made him a part of his life and yet by the same token I am so perhaps shocked by just how pitiful he appears before this king Bowing before him, falling prostrate before him, and hastily calling this Assyrian overlord his Lord. I am thy servant. I am thy son. Come up and save me. He asks him for aid. He asks this heathen king to be his savior. Yes, the very one who is leading the line of promise of God's people. That's the rebellion. That's the atrocity that's going on in this scene as this king falls before the feet of this awful, wicked tyrant. Save me. Deliver me. Come up to my aid. He is praying. Praying to this fellow man. And yet to sweeten the deal, perhaps he knows that he has to give him some sort of bribe. Notice what he does in verse 8. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present, a bribe, to the king of Assyria. 
And the king of Assyria hearkened. He listened unto him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive to Ker and slew Rezin. So he comes up and he does just what Ahaz requests. He comes to his aid. He comes and fights off his enemies. And in the process, he gets, gets a little bit richer throughout the deal. He gets to augment his bank account in a couple of dollars. And here, Ahaz has made, just like kings before him, this deal with the devils. You see, in, from a sort of geopolitical standpoint, King Tiglath-Pileser now has his hands in both kingdoms. If you remember from the previous chapter, he was very influential in leading certain kings to make certain decisions. In the land of Israel. And now he has his hand in the nation of Judah. This is sort of prophesied if you read some of the prophets. Amos is one of them. Where it talks about how God is just going to give his people over. To this God that they seemingly wanted. Okay, have your way. But I think the, the most inexcusable part of this whole thing for Ahaz as he's feeling this pressure of invasions and economy downturn and political squabbles perhaps people telling him what he ought to do and then he goes to Tiglath-Pileser for help I think the most inexcusable part of all of this is the fact that he had a message from Yahweh himself given to him go with me very familiar passage Isaiah chapter 7 Isaiah chapter 7, a contemporary prophet ministering during this time. And notice what he says. He says to this very king. Isaiah chapter 7, look at verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So... He's refreshing our memory of what we've just heard about. And it was told to the house of David. That's the kingdom of Judah. Saying, Syria is confederated with Ephraim. And his heart was moved. And the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. A very picturesque way of saying that the people of God here, as they hear about this war that's coming up against them, they are shaken to their core. Hurricane windstorms are blowing those trees sideways. It's blowing their hearts in ways that they have no idea how they're going to survive. And then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashub, thy son. And at the end of the conduit of the upper pool and the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands. For the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabial. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand. Neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, and it shall not be a people. 
And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If he will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. He's saying, take heart. Don't fear. I have this in my hand. These two, as he says, what does he call them? These two tails of these smoking firebrands. He's reducing them to nothing. Don't worry about these. The word of the Lord spoke through Isaiah, spoke directly to this king and said, your present circumstance is in the hands of Yahweh. Your crisis is not outside of his control, not outside of his ability to influence and intervene. And yet, what does he do? He doesn't bow before Yahweh. He doesn't heed these words that come from Isaiah's mouth. What does he do? He falls on his knees as as a pitiful little weakling before that king of Assyria, King Tiglath-Pileser. It makes that act of bowing, that act of please help me, please save me, all the more egregious. When you hear this word that has come from the mouth of this prophet... Take heed. Don't faint. Don't be weary. And yet, yet he is. He's weak because he has no Lord. He's weak because he has no foundation. He has nothing upon which to stand except for his own wit, except for his own wisdom, except for all the things that he is assuming that he is responsible for. But notice what happens. Ahaz, ever the progressive, So he's been freed from this sort of conflict with Syria and Israel, perhaps even to the Philistines and the Edomites. But notice verse number 10. He visits Damascus, the site, we could say, of Assyrian triumph. Perhaps he's going there to pay his new overlord some homage, pay him some respects for the ways in which he acted as his savior. Perhaps he's going to join in the celebration of what this king of Assyria has accomplished. And once he's there, though, he becomes absolutely enthralled with the way the people of Damascus worship. He sees their altar, and he begins to covet their altar. And he begins to say, I need to have one just like that for myself back home for the people of Judah. We need to worship like that back home. Notice what happens. Verse number 10. And the king Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And king Ahaz sent to Urijah, the priest, to fashion of the, the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to the workmanship thereof. And Urijah, the priest, built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Urijah the priest made it against King Ahaz from Damascus. And when the king was come from Damascus, and the king saw the altar, and the king approached to the altar and offered thereon. And he burned his offering, and he burned his mean offering, and poured his drink offering, and sprinkled the blood of his peace Offerings upon the altar, the altar from Damascus. Did you notice? The historian is kind of being not very grammatically correct. Just in the sense that he repeats something very often in those couple of verses. Six times in three verses, he talks about the city of Damascus. From, to, at, from Damascus. 
And I think he's just trying to drive home this point that this entire venture that Ahaz has become sort of consumed by, it's not from the Lord. He's reaching from elsewhere and bringing it back to the people of God. He's going outside of the kingdom to draw influence for the kingdom of God's people. It's not at all what God had in mind. It's appalling. It's an egregious fall that they would have nothing to do with the strict ordinance of God. Instead, they're trying to and they're being attracted by all of these things that are coming from the outside. And once again, who do we find at the center of it? Who do we find as sort of in the middle of all of this? In the middle of all of this atrocious things being brought into God's people? It's Ahaz. King Ahaz is once again the ringleader. Assimilating all of this gross practices. All of these egregious sort of worship and liturgies into the culture of God's chosen people. As it talks about here, he's copying the plans. Notice again, he notices the fashion and the pattern. And he says, guys, make it according exactly like this. I want an altar exactly like this back home so I can worship like that. And then to further emphasize this defiance, this demise of Ahaz, this defiance of Yahweh, he moves God's altar. And he takes this new altar and he makes it take its place. Notice verse 14. And he brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord from the forefront of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar, burn the morning, uh, burn the morning burnt offering, and the evening meat offering, and the king's burnt sacrifice, and his meat offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their meat offering, and their drink offerings, and sprinkle upon it the blood of the burnt offering, and all of the blood of the sacrifice, and the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. And the king, verse 17, cut off the borders of the bases and removed the laver from off of them and took down the sea from off of the brazen oxen that were under it and put it upon a pavement of stones. And the covert for the Sabbath they had built in the house and the king's entry without turned he from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria. He's doing all of this sort of furniture rearranging, not For the Lord, but for the king of Assyria. And again, it's not even that simple. It's not as simple as just moving something to the side and saying, look, now the room has just way more space. Have you ever come home and your significant other has changed the whole living room layout? And it's just so much better now. (laughs) Obviously, because it's new. (laughs) That's essentially what's going on here, except even way more serious. Because it's not just a simple matter of moving furniture. This is an act of contempt against Yahweh himself. Against the Jehovah Lord of all things. Who has strictly commanded things to go a certain way in his own house. And here you have, and I know it's, it, it's sort of redundant as we hear about all these offerings that the historian is talking about. But he's emphasizing just that. He's meddling with things that he has no realm no, no sort of authority with meddling. The offerings, the way in which worship is supposed to be conducted in God's house. And he's putting his nose where he ought not to be. 
See, you almost cannot get more obvious in your disdain for the Lord of all things than by refashioning the worship of him according to what suits you, according to what you think is best. And that's what Ahaz was doing. You see, in the end, all Ahaz accomplished was basically to bring the people of the Lord into full submission, not to Jehovah, but to that evil king of Assyria, King Pool, King Tiglath-Pileser. He's their master now. He's the one who's really governing them, who's really influencing them. He wasn't really successful in much else. But the thing is, I'm not quite... I'm not really as bent out of shape about that. Ahaz, we've known his true colors from the very beginning. He didn't do what was right in God's sight. And that sort of, he stays consistent with that at least. (laughs) He doesn't do what's right the whole time. He's a corrupt king who acts corruptly. No surprise there. But I think I'm most surprised, most stunned, and most perhaps sort of interested in that priest who was mentioned. Priest Urijah. Notice verse 10. And King Hanghaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah, the priest, the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it, according to all the workmanship thereof. And Urijah, the priest, built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had told him. He's... An inactive sort of passive priest throughout this whole venture. Every time he's mentioned. As King Ahaz is going through this sort of midlife crisis we can say of of grabbing all sorts of practices of idolatry and bringing them back home. What do we find Uriah doing? Basically a whole lot of nothing. He's just yesing his king. Yes, O king. Yes, I'll, I'll do what you say. Yes, I'll build you this new altar. Sure, you want that? Sure. Okay, let's go do that. You want to practice this now? You want to burn this at this time and this? Sure, I'll, I'll do whatever you say, king. He's spineless. He's going along with everything that his king is saying. and All of the, the, the mad sort of ventures that this king has cooked up. He makes no protest. He offers little, if any, resistance He makes no stand for the truth, even as this king is trampling over everything that God has told them, all of the words and the ways of the Lord. He's just spinelessly going along with it. It's almost shocking how pathetically this priest has sort of let go, released, surrendered his priestly calling. Notice verse 16. Because I think this is One of the most sad verses in this whole narrative. It says, thus did Uriah the priest. Notice, according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Not according to Yahweh's word. Not according to what he said. Not according to what the Lord of all things had laid down specifically for the priests to conduct themselves with. To interest themselves with. To concern themselves with. No, he's doing everything that his king wants. And so instead of upholding the importance, the power, the preeminence of God's words, he's folding. He's folding and trying to appease this awful king who's going headlong into ruin. 
You see, while King Ahaz gets all of the attention, perhaps, because he's burning children and making deals with devils from Assyria, I think Uriah the priest is the more critical character to pay attention to in the story, especially for us. For better or for worse, Uriah, he's our proxy. He's our example. He's the one we should look to and learn from. He, in a way, as he is sort of the priest in God's kingdom, he sort of represents the church in a way. He's us. As a priest, his job was singular, to maintain and to sort of cultivate a holy reverence, a, a rightful fear and faith of the Lord of all things in the hearts of the people of God. And this was done through the regular observance, the regular practice of rites and sacrifices and the temple offering, offerings and readings and all those sorts of things as specified in the word of the Lord. Nothing was to trump that word. Nothing was to go above it. Nothing was to be uh, sort of uh, be, uh, uh, before it. And the priests were to see to that. They were to be solely concerned with seeing to it that God's word, God's ministry among his people was the most preeminent thing. And you know, in a similar way, we've been sort of given the same charge as the church of God. What does he call us in First Peter? We are God's royal priesthood. Every single one of us, not just myself and Pastor Nathan or other pastors you know, we're not, quote unquote, the priests. We're all priests in God's house. The royal priesthood of the believers. Which means we are all in the service of King Jesus. Which means we have all been called to minister God's words in the hearts and lives of those who are around us. A.K.A. the Great Commission. That's his calling to each and every one of us to minister this word in ways that are grandiose, in ways that are small, in ways that are explicit or even implicit. We are to minister the truth of God's words, the power of it, the preeminence of it into every heart and life that we come across. And that cannot be done if we're bowing to the whims of the world and following their lead. That's what Elijah did. He bowed to the whims of this fanciful king. Instead of standing for what he knew was right. Nothing, honors, nothing that honors God ever results when the church takes its cues from outside sources. When the church of God starts allowing other influences to start uh, sort of telling it what it can do, what it can believe, what it can say, what it can stand for, you can know that the church is on its way to ruin, on its way to destruction. When the church resigns itself to the impulses of politicians or personalities, it has already lost when the absolute authority of King Jesus is compromised, you can be sure everything else will follow suit. What do we find happening with God's people soon after this instance? Exile. Ruin. I think you can trace it back, not just to this moment. 
This is perhaps the latest sort of example of what has been indicative of the people of God for centuries up to this point. They compromised. You saw it with Solomon all the way back in 1 Kings 11 where he compromised by allowing other, uh, other religions to influence his own. You can still see that compromise re- reeling its ugly head here and wreaking havoc on God's people. Leading all of this kingdom to crumble to dust. Elijah folded. He compromised. He failed to take any sort of stand. And it sort of reminds me of that old adage that if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. He's sort of the epitome of that. And I think in a way, too, Elijah reminds us of the seriousness of our calling, again, as priests of God. There's no stretch of imagination to say that the world that's described here by the historian is not that much different than our own. Upheaval on seemingly every corner. There's corruption happening all the time. You scroll through the news and just scroll through bad headline after bad headline. You hear of scandals happening in schools, happening in universities, happening in churches. What are we to do as the world sort of goes to hell in a handbasket all around us? What's our, what's our responsibility? What's our calling? What are we to do when all of that occurs? In short, take your stand, my friend. You know these verses. I'm going to read them to you as we close. Ephesians chapter 6, I think, speaks directly to the failure of Uriah. Ephesians 6, Paul talks about that wonderful image of putting on the armor of God. You know what he says as he begins this? Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God. That ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take, you, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. That's our calling, my friends. Standing in the evil day and standing not in our own ability, not in our own strength. As he says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord. It's not us. It's not our abilities. It's not our influence. It's not our wit. It's not our wisdom. It's not our knowledge. It's not our faith that allows us to stand in the evil day. It's the power of the Lord that is in us through his word and through his spirit. And our calling in these evil days is, yes, just that, to revel, to relish in these words of God and to take our stand upon just that. You and I this morning, we're Christians. Maybe you don't like to call yourself Christian because of sometimes it's associated with weird things or whatever. You're a Christian. The church of God was first called that in Acts. The church of Antioch, they were called Christians. Brother Matt Shadley brought us through that a couple weeks ago. It's a point that I'm glad that he brought up. We're little Christ. Did you know that that name was first used as sort of a slander, as a disparagement? 
Oh, you're a Christian. <laughs> like being called a like an Ohio State fan. Oh, you're it's the same sort of idea. But they were using it as slander, as disparagement. It's not a term of endearment. The people of God in those times were known as the people of the way. Christian was a, like a name you would call someone you don't like, you hate. And yet, what if we come uh, sort of full circle? We relish and rejoice in just that. We are Christians. And unlike Uriah, who sort of folded in the face of pressure, in the face of fear, we ought not to be ashamed or embarrassed by that, my friends. We can glory in that disparagement that we are Christ. We are his people. As it says in the New Testament, we are his bride. And rather, we can rally around that and just that, I would say. Some people, I'll say this too, just probably needs to be said. Some people read that stance, it says, taking, uh, take your stand and having sort of that command said to us. That, and some people read that as, you know, be a jerk. Be rude. Be in your face with your faith. I don't think that's what God's people are called to do. We're not called to be jerks with what we believe. But it does mean we aren't to compromise when fear comes, when pressure comes. We don't need to shove the gospel down people's throats. But what we are called to do is to share the truth and love without compromise. First John talks about that. The truth and love without compromise, without relinquishing what we believe. Because our one and only rallying cry is Christ and him crucified. The incarnate, immovable word of God. That's what we stand on. Yes, even in the evil day, we, as it says, we have our feet shod. Where's that verse? I'll just read it all. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench the darts, all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's how you stand. It's his power in you, my friends. Even when there's high-minded folks, leaders, influential people telling you, let's do it this way. Let's make a compromise here. The people of God are not called to compromise. We're called to take our stand and having done all to stand. Because we stand on the solid rock. We stand on the truth of Christ, the King forever. Let us pray.